0: This is uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, that's easier to do in uh, a place like this, where we look over the ocean and remind ourselves that God decided that 71% of the planet should be water, and uh, and that we would be visitors there. My name is Mark Hamilton, and my task this morning is to talk about. Jesus, King of Strangers, which is a book coming out uh, today. Today is the publication date. It's available in the uh, book exhibit. There will be a signing tonight. It's available on Amazon. Uh, an audio book's in process. And movie rights are underway, I think, uh, maybe. But, um, but the book is available. And so some of what I will say today is in the book, uh, though I think it says it better than perhaps I'll say it today. Some of it's not because I, I keep thinking as, as anybody does. But my task this morning is not really to hawk a book uh, or to promote an idea, much less myself. Uh, the task today is to talk about a topic I believe to be of great importance for the church's life for our integrity as exemplars of the gospel uh, and so my task today is really uh, to plead for the soul of the church and to call us out of our silence. For now though, let's, let's go and address our, our God with our concerns this morning. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, as we hear the sound of the water burbling, as we hear the stis, the thump thump of our own hearts, as we hear the voices of our fellow human beings, we stand before you as your children in desperate need of your presence, in great want when we feel your absence. Lord, we come to you today crying out to you and asking for your help. Help us to see the beauty of your creation. Help us to see the wonders of your grace, which extends not just to us or people like us, but to all around us. Help us to see the needs of our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters. Help us to worry less about passports and citizenship and more about the work you're doing in each and every life. Help us to see in our neighbor, especially the one who looks the most different from us, the face of Jesus, who is is other than us. Help us to break out of our silence as a church. Help us to do what we can. Help us to rest our confidence in you, knowing that your work is far greater than we can imagine. And that even now you're planting seeds in the hearts of men and women who will act in ways that we do not anticipate. But which we will celebrate. Lord, help us to hear the cries that you also hear. The cries of those separated from their families. The cries of those in need. The cries of those who simply want to build a better life. The cries of those who are afraid. Help us to hear those cries and respond to them. Let us be your instruments in this world to whatever degree we can be. And today, give us wisdom. Open up your word to us so that we can hear it afresh and grow in its observance. This we pray in Jesus' name, the one who was himself a migrant, who had no place to lay his head. Amen. Today, In our world, something like 250 million human beings live in a country other than the one in which they were born. An additional 60 million and rising human beings are displaced from their place of birth by force, by desperate need. We call those people refugees. And many of those people still live in the same country in which they were born. They're displaced people, while others live in nearby countries. A handful of them uh, enter our country, the United States. The last year or so, something like 29,000 will enter the United States, though that number is rapidly dropping owing to uh, political pressure and decisions made in powerful places. 29,000 out of 60 million. Not exactly a number indicating that we are doing all we could (laughs) to lift the burdens of the world. Around the world, in the developed countries, uh, the issues of immigration, the free movement of people has become a political issue. Brexit, anybody? and has shaped uh, political discourse in a range of countries, including our own. In some countries, uh, men and women who, on the far right of the political spectrum, have come to power by, in part, by exploiting uh, the discontents of people and directing those discontents toward migrants whether refugees or voluntary migrants. And in some of those countries, the appeal to blood and soil has uh, risen to a pitch not seen since the Second World War. Or in the case of one country, uh, perhaps never seen at the top of the political spectrum. What country that is, I leave to your imagination. And so uh, the question for the church is in, in the reality in which we're talking about the lives not of a handful of people but of hundreds of millions of people and in which the economic influence of these people uh, is so great. For example, migrants send home twice as much money as... Uh, the countries to which they have migrated send to their homelands in foreign aid. So the repatriation of funds has become a much more important factor uh, than foreign aid. This was certainly the case in the United States where uh, international non-military foreign aid is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 billion dollars. Two-thirds of which almost goes to four countries in the Middle East. Uh, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, not Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Israel. So we live in a world, a complicated world, and my task today is not to get us to the realm of foreign policy or economic policy or law even. What I want to do this morning is just to talk about the moral surroundings that law needs because without a vibrant moral community of discourse in the public square, laws can't be made that will bring about justice. Without people committed to justice, there can never be enough policemen. And, and part of uh, that public square discussion of justice has to come from religious communities. So the question for us today is, what part of our religious heritage is valuable to this contribution? What do we have to say in the public square, if anything? It's not just a question of proof texting. How do I find this or that verse? Though there are plenty of verses to go around for this discussion. This is not like the discussion on same-sex attraction, which has just a handful of biblical verses this discussion has hundreds. Uh, So what do we have to say, if anything, in the public arena? I say, if anything, because one of the shocking aspects of the current moment, for me, is the silence of so much of the church, the abject silence, the acquiescence in the blood and soil nationalism, the refusal to offend and contradict, even when that refusal means the wholesale abandonment of the scriptural witness. I don't know how to say that more directly. I think that's direct enough. So what is the scriptural witness? It turns out that when you read the Bible, Asking the question, what does this text say about people on the move? Whether and the people who host the people on the move, it turns out that this is a topic all over the place, as I said. And so part of the challenge for us in reading the Bible along these lines is just trying to corral all the texts, trying to find those. The book I wrote certainly doesn't do that. There are many texts that don't get talked about at least very much, just referred to, because I only had 50,000 words. And it, and that's the limit. But let me start with a few texts and see what we have to say. The first one I, I take you to is the book of Genesis, chapter 20. It's an interesting story in which... Uh, Abraham, who is, of course, the ultimate migrant in the Bible. Now, you could count Noah, but that's, that's not exactly the model for anything else, actually. Though he was, I suppose, the first boat person. It's the only joke I have today. So, there's a story in chapter 20 of the book of Genesis in which Abraham is on the move. Abraham and Sarah and their flocks and herds and various hangers-on. And they come to a place called Gerar, down south in the land of Israel, what later became the land of Israel. Uh, that in itself, the name of the place must have brought about a little bit of a chuckle in the, in the eyes of the, uh, the people listening to this story originally, because it's a kind of pun, the Hebrew word for, ger, for migrant or stranger or alien, although I prefer migrant, is the word ger, uh, gemel Raish. And the name of the place they come to is Gerar, Gimel Reish Reish. So there's a kind of uh, a kind of uh, interesting thing going on there. But they come to Gerar and they do what anybody in the ancient world would do: they try to build alliances, because here we are, aliens in a strange land not knowing the people, the customs, having no connections with people. So the first thing you do is you try to build connections. And in their world, part of connection building is through the exchange of spouses, through intermarriage. And so Abraham does what he has done before. The last time he showed up in a foreign country, Egypt in that case, he passes his sister off as his wife. He passes his wife off as his sister. It goes, well, neither one is good, by the way. He passes his wife off as his sister and he allows her to go into the harem of King Avimelech of Gerar who does not know what has happened. And that ignorance is important because that's the only thing that saves his life as it happens. You know the story. The story is Avimelech has has gone to sleep and he has this very vivid dream. And in the dream, a deity threatens to kill him. Now, I've had some scary dreams before, honestly, especially during faculty meetings, Uh, but I've never had a dream in which anybody threatened to kill me, and in which I believed it to be not just a bad something I'd eaten, but to be a real threat. Avi Melik believes it to be a real threat, and so the conversation goes like this. Uh, The deity says, I'm going to kill you. The reason I'm going to kill you is because you married this woman who was already married. You took another man's wife. Which is, though the text doesn't have to explain this, a gross abuse of royal power. Uh, Maybe the grossest possible abuse of royal power. Taking people's land, taking their stuff is one thing. That's bad. But taking their, their spouses, I will kill you. You do wonder why... That same deity didn't say that to David, had to send a prophet. Avimelech says, wait, wait a minute. And this is all happening in the dream, which is a little bit funny, I think. He says, he says, well, sir, I I didn't I didn't know. I didn't know I was innocent. This guy tricked me. Yes, you're right. He tricked you. Sorry about that. What you need to do is return the wife, kind of make everything right. And because he is a prophet. I will ask him to pray for you. I'll come back to that in a minute. And Avi Melek goes the next day to Abraham and he says, you know, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but only slightly because I think the Bible deletes some of the words he must have said. It says, uh, you know, what in the world were you doing? What, what were you thinking, Abraham? when you did this to me. And Abraham has the most curious example that I think is worth our reading because it gives us insight into Israel's understanding of what it meant to be a migrant. Uh, What have you done to us? Genesis 20 verse nine. How did I sin against you that you've brought such great guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that ought not to be done. And Avimelech said to Abraham again, What were you thinking of that you did this thing? Here's his answer. Now, I don't know if this is the worst answer ever given to a confrontational question, but it would have to be a candidate for that role. I I don't know of a worse one. I did it. Because I thought there is no fear of God in all this place, and they will kill me because of my wife besides. She is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander in my, from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say to me, of me, he is my brother. That's his answer. Now, how many problems are there with this answer? First of all, well... I don't know how many there are. There are a lot of them. Abraham opens with an insult. He says, the reason I lied to you is because I believe that you were not the sort of person to whom the truth was owed. Which, of course, is a discussion in ethics, right? I mean, the the problem we all, you know, first year ethics. If the Gestapo comes to your door and you're hiding Jews, do you have to tell them? Or is it okay to lie, right? And the answer is easy. Yes, of course, it's okay to lie. Obviously, you lie because you preserve life. There's a higher value than simple truth. These people do not deserve the truth. And Abraham's answer to Avimelech is, though he puts it slightly more politely, but only slightly, he says, you're not the sort of person who deserves the truth. Now, the curious thing about that is that in the lines just before that, God has said to Avimelech, well, first of all, he showed up and told him the truth. So God thought Avimelech deserved the truth, even if it's veiled in a threat. And when Avimelech says, you know, I'm sorry, I was ignorant, God accepts that excuse. And Avimelech responds by trying to make right what he had done wrong, which is the text way of saying Abraham has lodged a a false charge against Avimelech. The charge is there is no fear of God here. But the charge is false, which means that Abraham's entire line of reasoning collapses. It's based on a faulty assumption about the other person. But at the same time, if you think about that a second, you think, well, why would Abraham think that? Maybe he's just this nymphomaniacal, crazy person. Maybe, maybe, but I, I don't think that's right. That's not how he's portrayed in general in Genesis. I think the better answer is, and you see this in other parts of the Bible, that living as the alien, as the stranger, is dangerous. There is often no fear of God. People who are enmeshed in power and accustomed to power and used to this being the norm are willing to do anything and everything to defend it and see no problem with doing so, believe that they must do so that they are morally obliged to do so. And you say, well, where do you see that? Well, Pharaoh in Exodus, Akashverosh in Esther. You see, and there are other places, in fact, for the most part, foreign kings are always portrayed this way. And most Israelite kings are portrayed this way, that they simply are more interested in power than anything else. And they see that as the, the ultimate good. So it's not unreasonable to think that maybe this is a place in which there is no fear of God. Abraham's problem was he assumed that without any evidence. But then there's that other side, too, of his answer. He says, uh, besides slandering his opponent, that's never a good idea. He plays to technicality. Terrible. You think, well, okay, you know, you get these credit card offers in the mail, and there's the really fine print down there, so fine you need an electron microscope to read it. That's what Abraham is doing. It's the fine print. Yes, she is my sister, but that's information without value. And then, of course, his last point that I think is also the most interesting in many ways when God caused me to wander. So whose fault is it, Abraham, that you did this thing? Well, Avi Milik, it's your fault because you don't fear God. It's my wife's fault because that's the agreement we have. And ultimately it's God's fault because God caused me to wander. Now you look at that and you think that's, it's a, it's a, to me it's a fascinating story. Uh, it certainly doesn't make Abraham look that good. But it's like all the stories in Genesis. If you, want, if you want really nice cardboard characters that behave exactly as they should, either good or bad, then you shouldn't read the Bible because there aren't any of those in there very much. Uh, you, you have to go to, well, Disney or uh, the latest Avenger movie or something. I mean, that, that's, it's not the Bible. But the Bible uses the story to explore uh, what, what does it mean? to be the stranger. What does it mean to be the host of the stranger? And in this case the host of the stranger did what he should do. He made an alliance under, with good intent though he did not know what he was doing. And then when it turned out that that alliance making was done incorrectly, really badly, he didn't simply throw the person out. He made a new alliance by giving him gifts to make it right. And then, at the end, of course, Abraham has to pray for him. Which has its own, makes its own uneasiness for the reader, surely. Because you think to yourself, well, really, we need an outside person to come in and pray for both of them. (laughs) Right? Uh, Because neither of these fellows seem, well, Avimelech's prayer seems much better. Lord, I'm sorry. I'll make it right. That seems like an appropriate prayer. Abraham, though, is the prophet. And then you say to yourself, well, where did I see this before? I saw it earlier when Abraham was told about the destruction of Sodom that was impending. And he was told, and he and he does pray for those people. He does what he's supposed to do as the stranger, as the one who is on the move. You say, that's that's interesting because I hope by now other texts are going off in our brains. And when I mention that last point, we hear, we hear the letter of Jeremiah to the, to the people in exile in Babylon who tells to them to pray for the peace of the city. Not to pray for the success of Babylonian imperial ingre- aggression, perhaps, or to pray for every policy to work as it's supposed to work, but to pray for the peace of the city because in their peace is your peace. It is, not, it is not the acceptance of the claim of the empire to be legitimate and right and to dominate. It is a hard-nosed acceptance of reality that as long as these people are relatively happy, they'll not mess with us. It's an attempt by the stranger to try to limit the danger that he or she is facing. So that's one text that goes off in our brains, maybe. Undoubtedly, there are others, because if you read the Bible, again, the Old Testament as a whole, it seems to me, to get it very simply, but I think this works well, is if you read the Old Testament as a whole, you notice that there, there really are two main stories here. The, big, the first big story is the story of the Exodus, which is not just in Exodus, but shows up on many, many pages throughout the canon, including in the New Testament. And the second big story is the story of exile. The story of the mass deportations from the late 8th century to the early 6th century BC. Those two events have huge ramifications for Israel's self-understanding and its way of life and therefore for the formation of the Bible, and therefore for the formation of Christianity. Those events still bear fruit and have impact thousands of years later. Now we know about the first one because we can see Charlton Heston in our heads, uh, who was more mosaic than Moses was. But the exile has not yet, as far as I know, had its great movie. Uh, Perhaps someday it will. And yet that experience or set of experiences profoundly shapes how the Bible looks at the world, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. So that's point one, story. There are many other stories we could talk about. I wanna go to point two, which is about law. And I just want to read one law, even though this commandment is repeated again and again in the Old Testament. And it comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 22, uh, verse 21 in English. It's part of what's called the covenant code. Uh, Exodus calls it covenant, and we say code because it's a list of laws. It's not really a code, it's a collection of laws. In other words, it doesn't cover every imaginable situation, but it covers a lot of things. And amongst these laws addressed to these farmers in ancient Israel are are these, chapter 22, verse 21. You should not wrong or oppress a geir, a migrant, a resident alien, a stranger. For you were migrants in the land of Egypt. You should not abuse any widow or orphan. Now that that triad, I like to call it the triad of the vulnerable, shows up all over the Old Testament, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. These are the people whose family structures are not necessarily able to protect them in a family-oriented society. And without the kind of state providing any sort of safety net, which of course didn't exist before the 20th century, for the most part, Uh, family is everything. These are people whose families are, in some way or another, uh, not on the scene. Don't mistreat them. It's interesting, there's a warrant, there's a reason given, because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You know, laws don't always have warrants. Uh, Sometimes they don't need them. You know, thou shall not kill doesn't really need an explanation. It's self-evident why you shouldn't do that. But this one apparently needs a bit of an explanation, though it's very short. It's very short because when the, when the text says you were, you were migrants in the land of Egypt, it triggers, it triggers vast amounts of communal collective memory. The story. We know the story. The story is the Exodus story. In other words, the law says, don't oppress these people because to do so is to violate your core story in a fundamental way. That's point one. The next point is that it also assumes, it presupposes, without saying so explicitly, it presupposes that the law must must rest on something more fundamental, a culture of empathy and self-understanding and understanding of the other. We have to be able to say, that person is like me. Those people, that collective, it's easier with individuals, right? But that collective of people is like us. Their experiences are analogous to our experiences. They may not be the same in every way, but they're close enough that the lessons I learned from my experience, I should be able to employ in engaging with theirs. That's point two. And point three, it's rather striking. Again, it's not spelled out, but it's obviously there. And that is, if you treat those migrants abusively, you will be like, not yourselves, not Israel, but you will be like Pharaoh and his hench people. You, Your society will be what Deuteronomy calls the house of slaves. Right? And so... And so if you don't want to do that, don't act this way. And so empathy, sense of honor, uh, sense of self-identity and integrity, all these things are being triggered by this, this one little one little clause for you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That's one warrant, but there's another warrant that's given. You know, most a lot of people read, think that the Old Testament is a book full of threats, and grim statements and demands. It turns out, if you read it carefully, uh, yes, there are some grim situations because it's stories about human beings, and it's not always easy to tell happy stories about us. But for the most part, there aren't that many threats. There aren't that many texts in law in which the Lord says, you know, if you don't do this, I will kill you. In that way, it's unlike, say, the Code of Hammurabi, which ends many of the laws, if not almost all of them, with uh, the good Akkadian word, edok, he will die. Uh, Which, you know, if you violate it, you will die. But this text does have a line like that. If you abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives will become widows and your children orphans. I like it when the Bible is vague, don't you? Uh, Ambiguous, unclear. Uh, This is not one of those cases. Why the threat? The threat comes from a deity who is. Profoundly affronted by the abuse of these people. The Bible talks about the wrath of God, about God's just, appropriate, right fury at human abuse of other humans. Uh, the white heat of passion is attributed to God. Now, I think we humans are capable of that too, and so we can get into a long, tedious discussion about anthropopathy if you want to, but so far I've I've never found that very interesting. But, you know, does God have feelings like us? But it is what the text says, and it, it is attributing to God not our worst attributes, but our best, I would say. Our sense that There are some things in the world that are so reprehensible that we must respond to them. We cannot be indifferent to them. And and so we have in this text, God described that way. That God hears their cries. You say, well, that's another Exodus echo, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Because you remember in chapter three of Exodus, uh, the burning bush says to Charlton Heston, I have heard their cries, right? God has observed them, knows what's happening, and intends to respond. will appoint a deliverer. And this text says, which side of that story do you want to be on, really? Now, that's, I think, sobering. It would be less sobering if this text weren't repeated over and over again, though in truth this is, seems to be the most repeated single command in the laws of the Pentateuch, not to abuse the foreigner. For the simple reason that in a society that is family-based, that is very traditional, and very much localized, the outsider is always, always risk being treated with suspicion and fear. Now the Bible sometimes talks about this as well. So we have the story of Ruth, for example. Do you remember that story? Uh, The story, just read it again sometime, and notice how often it keeps talking about Ruth the Moabitess. Right? Ruth the Moabitess. Why, she says to Boaz, why are you so nice to me when I am a nokri? I'm a foreigner. And his answer is what? Well, we heard what you did to Naomi. We heard how you treated her when she was a migrant. When she was someone neat, And how you watched out for her. And we were impressed by that. Because that's that's the value to which we also aspire. Now I'm not I'm not I don't know what exactly the direct connection is, is between the law in Exodus and the story in Ruth, written a long time later, uh, but I think it makes sense to read them in some kind of connection because they illustrate, and Ruth becomes in a kind of living illustration of what this law looks like in practice. If you see the stranger, the alien, the migrant, the foreigner, the immigrant, how do you deal with this person? That's point two. Now you say to yourself in the two hours I have left, actually, I'm going to stop in just a few minutes. Do you see this in the New Testament? Because we're New Testament Christians. Mark, the Lord nailed all this to the cross, right? Except he didn't. Uh, uh, We're New Testament Christians. Does it show up in the New Testament? The answer is yes, though with much greater ferocity. Uh, Because whereas the the Old Testament talks about divine judgment in terms of human death, the New Testament introduces the idea of something more prolonged uh, which is not in the Old Testament. But there is a story I point you to and, I, and then I have one last thing after this one and then I'll, we'll take discussion if we can. Uh, there's the story in the 25th chapter of Matthew that everybody knows. The story is the story of the greatest size, the last judgment in which the judge assembles all the world and he divides them into two camps, the sheep and the goats on the left and the right. I don't know if it's his left or their left. I, I, it will be really important to know that at the moment, but right now I don't know. Uh, I guess they'll tell us, I hope. And, and he, says, he says to the people, he says, you guys, the sheep people, what's wrong with goats, by the way? There's nothing wrong with goats. He says to the people who are welcome, he says, Okay, you did it, you did the right thing. Come into the kingdom. And these people are so righteous. They're so righteous, they say to the Lord, uh, sir, there must be a mistake. We don't we don't think we deserve any of this. And they he says, Well, you, you fed the hungry, you visited the prisoner. There were strangers. No, I was a stranger. I was a migrant. Xenos, I was a migrant. You took me in. You say, well, this is the kind of the synagogue ethos, I think. And that's right, that in ancient Roman cities, a synagogue was a kind of way station for traveling Jews as well. Uh, you came to town and you told folks you were part of the Jewish community and they said, "And do you need a place to stay? And it was, a, it was a conduit for hospitality. And that's an expectation of being in this community that you must share what you have with your, your, fellow, your fellow members of this community. Uh, and of course, there are other people who do that too. I, I, I learned recently from a friend of mine that uh, this was something the Pythagoreans did as well. That uh, if you were a part of the Pythagorean community, going around doing geometry all the time. You don't get many Pythagorean jokes, I think. Uh, they, they had other beliefs besides geometry. Uh, that they would take care of you in the same way. So that it's not unique to the Jews or the Christians, but it is part of the ethos of, of Judaism and Christianity. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. And these righteous people are so righteous. They say to the great judge, Sir, we don't, when did we do that? You know, I'm running through my brain and I'd really like to take credit for that, but I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember. You did it to the least of these. And to the others, to the others, he says, uh, You didn't. But Lord, we. Uh, we and you hear the desperation we did we did great wonders in your name we cast out demons we proclaimed your name in dangerous places we spoke at the pepperdine lecture i i don't don't know who you are i'm sorry it's a It's a hard text. Uh, I know we like to demythologize this, and we debate whether hell is real or whatever, uh, which I can't imagine how we have any access to the knowledge required for that conversation. But anyway, uh, there's something here about the great judge evaluating us on the basis of our care for the alien. Among other people. This is why. Final text. The letter to the Hebrews. In this marvelous exhortation. At the end of the letter. Follows. The great. Vision that it sets out in chapter 12. Laying aside the weight. Let us look unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. And. And, and we are not like those who have come to, Zion, to, to, to Sinai where the mountain quaked and everybody trembled and everybody was afraid and nobody wanted to say, hear anything. And they said to Moses, you know, we could, somebody could get killed up there. You go up there. It's not like that. We have come to Zion, to the new Jerusalem, the company of angels and the saints made perfect and all that. This beautiful oration at the end. And then he comes, the letter, the sermon ends by saying in chapter 13 let mutual love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers aliens, migrants for by doing so some have entertained angels without knowing it the last point I would make is this it's a very strange text, Hebrews 13, verse two. You say, well, what biblical text is not strange? Actually, that's the right answer. Probably Leviticus is the least strange book in the Bible on, if you think about it. But Hebrews says you should, you should attend to the, to the migrant because people who do that have been known to entertain angels. It's a very weird reason to give. I would have said, you should do that because you, maybe you'll be that person yourself and need help. Or you should do that because you want to be a good person who shows empathy toward others, and that would be a good way to do that. Or you should do that because you know that God is a judge who t- does, takes kindly to people who, unkindly to people who don't do that. So you should do that out of respect. All of those are perfectly good reasons. But the reason he gives is a s- surprising reason. He says, some have entertained angels. Because, because the Hebrews writer wants to say to those early Christians, and I think to us, that as Christian people, we live in a world of wonder. We serve a God who creates out of nothing something beautiful, who transforms the lives of people in dramatic ways, who preserves people over time and generations and even centuries who intervenes in the lives of people in saving ways, who hears the cries of the neediest, the smallest, the least of us, and sometimes refuses to respond to the most powerful. Ought we not to see the world in which we live as a world of wonder? I say that because so many of us today and in our news media, and in our politics, see the issue of migration as a problem to be solved. And of course, it does contain a great many problems. How do you eliminate human trafficking? How do you eliminate drug smuggling or money laundering? How do you reduce violence? How do you make sure people aren't giving away their life savings uh, just to be able to move? Uh, How do you avoid politicians exploiting this for their own personal gain. I mean, there there are problems to solve, no doubt. But think of the opportunities. Brave, aspiring human beings, taking risks, wanting to create something better and new. What untapped opportunities. And for Christian people, because... The largest single religion amongst migrants today is Christianity, uh, by far. Uh, The opportunity for the work of God in the world to be seen, for revival and renewal in the global north to happen in a profoundly secular culture that has lost its mind. Uh, the opportunities to serve. <coughs> Hebrews invites us finally to see not just problem, but hope. And that, I hope, is our lesson for today as well. I hope this gives you something to chew on, and I hope the book itself is of use to you. Uh, there will be a signing tonight, uh, and I'll sign, you know, this would be a great Christmas gift for, say, a hundred of your closest friends. But uh, almost as good as a trip to Hawaii. But whether you buy the book or not is not the point. Uh, The real point is, can we be instruments of God's peace for those around us who need help? And can we be willing, not just to give to those in need, but to build alliances with those who can grow, not to be our dependents, but our friends. That's the question. Because we're not, we're not in the charity giving business. We are in the community building business. And in that difference lies everything. Thank you for listening. I'm very grateful for your time here today. God bless you all.